A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi everyone and welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly mental health podcast. I'm Yvette and today I'm chatting to Graham Morgan. We're going to be chatting about life with schizophrenia and also his new memoir, which is called Blackbird Singing. I was first affected by mental illness in my very early 20s when I was admitted to an old psychiatric hospital. But I was diagnosed with schizophrenia when I was 28, about five months after my um, son had been born. Not to be too graphic, um, I stopped sleeping. And I think the pressure of looking after a young child in my first ever job, my first ever house, and trying to be a perfect dad and a perfect husband and a perfect worker all added up. And initially, life became difficult. I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't think. And old thoughts of self-harm surfaced again. And I was referred to services, but before I saw anyone, everything sort of collapsed, almost like a um, switch turned in my mind. And it was strange to your, your listeners, but um, for me, it suddenly seemed as though I had spirits or devils staring at me from every sparkle of seawater or um, every shine of a light bulb, and that they were altering my thoughts and that they had come inside my body and made me such an evil person that I couldn't touch my uh, wife or my son because I thought that would infect them with something bad. And that escalated until I was sectioned and taken into a hospital. But that was a long time ago. That was nearly 35 years ago now. But that was the first time what you might call psychosis happened to me. Mm. 
Are you all right to tell us a bit more about um, what you've had in terms of treatment? Because um, it sounds like you've sort of been in, in and out of the system a fair bit and also what's helped and what hasn't helped. Yes, yeah, so I'll try not to take up the next the rest of the evening. Um, at first, <laughs> I first went into hospital. This may be interesting to some of your listeners. Uh, years and years ago, and it was one of the old asylums. That experience is what got me into the sort of speaking out about what we go through. Um, I was in somewhere called Middlewood that shut many, many years ago, but used to have thousands of patients in it. And it was in Sheffield. And the room place I was in, there were smashed windows. There were holes in the walls. The beds were about a foot apart from each other. There was no privacy at all. Sleeping at night was really, really noisy. and. Um, it was just a horrible, horrible environment. Um, I was completely unprepared for it. What really struck me though, which is strange is some of the nurses were lovely. Um, they weren't in uniforms and unlike today, it was very common to go in the evening to the pub for, um, recreation and to get out of the hospital environment. But there were times where, which were hard when say a, a, a patient would be restrained by nurses, which was really very, very horrible to see. And some of the patriarchal parts of it were really, really, really sad. And after it, I, I did some volunteering where I met up with, was meant to meet up with someone who was a long-term patient there. And I remember the first letter I wrote him and when he replied, he wanted to know what Sheffield was like, because he hadn't been out of the gates of the hospital in the last 30 years. I had no idea what the architecture was like and just wondered, wondered what it would be like, which was really sad. Anyway, that was quite a diversion and quite a long thing. I next went into hospital in, in Edinburgh and, um, it wasn't too bad. Um, there were some bad things about it. There was one nursing assistant who likes to, um, stand in the line. In those days you had to line up for medication and, um, he found it funny to pretend to be a patient. So he sort of pretended to be your typical stereotype. So he was sort of drooling and staggering and doing weird noises. And that was utterly humiliating, but there were some wonderful people around there too. Um, I remember some of the nurses, there was a warmth to them, which was very reassuring because that was my first real admission where I had been really very, very ill, I suppose. And they were kind to me mainly. It was difficult being followed around everywhere. Very difficult. And it was lovely on those days when you got out of the ward into the, um, into green spaces to talk and relax and forget what the ward was like, but it was frightening. I spent a lot of my time very desperate to harm myself and was given horrendously high doses of medication. This was maybe 20 years ago, maybe longer. I remember I was on a thousand milligrams of, um, log actor, which is the highest you can get on. And then was given lots of haloperidol when I, um, when I was acting oddly. And that was horrible because, um, it was like someone poured treacle over your brain. You could hardly think, hardly move. Uh, and the log actor made you photosensitive, which no one told us about. So I got horribly sunburned. But apart from that, it was good. Being there kept me safe. 
at a time when my family was in total shock of what was happening to me. And over time I, I came out again, started work. And in those days, there weren't many community services. I went to a day hospital, which was a bit humiliating. I remember the occupational therapist spent more time talking to my wife when she visited than me whenever I was there. But, um, it was somewhere to go, I suppose. And then there was really a gap. I saw people from the mental health team. Once I went on to my depot injections, when I moved to the Highlands and I didn't know it, but, um, apparently I rejected the community mental health team. It was only a decade later, but people said, we'd always wanted you to engage with us as the, as the jargon goes. And I, I didn't really know I disengaged from them. I just knew I was no longer seeing my CPN, but life was good. I got my Jag. And then I wonder what, how I describe it. My marriage became not a good one. And I went in and out of hospital and the hospital was lovely. The new Craigs in, in Scotland, you, you look over the top of Inverness out to see there's trees on woods all around you. Um, you almost have picture windows, but it is quite clinical and you have your own room, your own shower, but when you're there. And you're trying to work out which nurse it's safe to go to the toilet in front of without being humiliated. It is a horrible experience, but again, there were nice times. Some of the patients were absolutely wonderful and it, it sounds a bit twee, but, um, there was a group of women and some of us men who would go to the non-smoking room in the evening and just watch films that have been taken out from the store and, um. They were mainly in their dressing gowns and they'd pass around chocolates and popcorn. And in some ways it was like a group of close friends who spending the evening together, except sometimes people would have to get up and go out. And sometimes alarms would go off, which would remind you what was happening. Um, and not all the treatment was good, but I, I did get a lot, especially from a nurse who just demonstrated huge value in me. It was. It was really, really good. There are two nurses I can think of in particular. One was a nurse who in the middle of the night, say three in the morning, I was saying, I want to die. And my son and my family would be so much better off if I didn't live. And she sat me down and she said she was the daughter of, um, someone with bipolar who had often been suicidal. And she said, if I were to choose to die, it'd be the worst thing I could ever do to my son. But she did it in such a way that I didn't feel ashamed or embarrassed, but woke up a bit and realized, even though I didn't change my mind, that it would be a truly damaging thing. And to have that wee glimpse of perspective was, um, very beautiful. And then there was another nurse who just, she would sit on my bed and somehow she would get me talking when I, I really couldn't talk. And she promised me she would talk about things that were important to me and be there for me and keep me safe and that she had a duty to keep me safe, which in a way was comforting. So there have been good treatments and outside of hospital in those years, then I, I got involved in psychology and saw CPNs and some of them were just absolutely wonderful. Being able to say almost anything to a stranger who, you know, respects you is wonderful. It's awful when you're having to say things to someone who you think couldn't care less if you're in their company, but when you think they want to be with you 
and want to make your life better. That, that is really good. Even if they don't make your life better, having that gesture of, um, validation, I suppose that gesture of we believe in you and we hope life gets better for you has been life-saving on occasions because sometimes life with these experiences is terribly, terribly lonely and terribly upsetting. And to have had them has made all the difference, especially when I've been far from my friends and far from my loved ones. I'm wittering a bit. I'm sorry about that, but um, I hope that was interesting to hear some of my treatment over the years. Yeah, it was so interesting as well to sort of hear the, I mean, I think it's amazing you've, you've still got a lot of lovely things to say about sort of the treatment and because um, it sounds like it was pretty dark as well, it, like the really, really starting off with the really sort of old school asylum type place. Um, and it's, you know, obviously horrible to hear that there was staff that were sort of um, heartless, but also, you know, I'm obviously glad that you also had very understanding nurses as well. Um, I guess it moves, it brings me on to my next question, which is about, um, you have an MBE, don't you, for services to mental health. Um, could you tell us a bit about that um, and, and your work in with the, the Scottish Mental Health Care and Treatment app? Oh, yes, I can. I'm not entirely sure what I got my MBE for. MBE for. I think it was a mixture of being on the original committee. It was called the Milan Committee, which reviewed the um, old Mental Health Act, which resulted in the 2003 Act, so ages ago. But also, I was very, very active with a group called um, Hug Action for Mental Health in the Highlands. And we had the most wonderful time just making a difference, really. We had about 500 members, and I was, in some ways, the manager. Well, I was... I was literally the manager and we spoke with professionals about our lives to help them understand us better and treat us better. We spoke with the media and the press. We took plays run by professional actors, but with us too, around the schools, meeting maybe 9,000 young people and making such a difference to their, um, their lives so much so that some of them started nursing careers as a result of it. Um, we had art exhibitions and worked with Moniac Mall, which is Scotland's writing centre. So we had exhibitions in, in community facilities, in museums, in um, theatres. Oh, it was a very good time. And we gathered a reputation, I don't know what for, for all sorts of things. Giving voice to people who, in those days, really had very little voice and being able to say it in such a way that people could listen to it without becoming defensive. So we made changes to services, to policy, to practice, and became known internationally, which was, that was quite extraordinary. It was really strange because we, we were just we things, not really knowing much, but going to um, Romania or Catalonia or places like that because people wanted to hear how we did what we did was wonderful. And sort of lunch times with people from, six or seven different European countries, all chattering, all trying to find out how we did what we did and what they did, what did what they did. It was an invigorating, exciting, exhilarating time. And in many ways, some of our members just felt that it was a, a sense of um, a wider family. But changing the Mental Health Act was very much about the legislation that detains us. And that's what I'm involved in at the moment. I'm um, 
vice chair of the Scottish Review of Mental Health Legislation at the moment, and we report and report to the minister in a month and a half's time. And that's been a sweeping review of all the legislation that applies to people with mental illness, learning disabilities, dementia, autism. And we're making, we think we're making anyway, some very wide ranging recommendations. And that's been a huge, huge piece of work, especially as I've been heading up the um, involuntary and coercive treatment work stream when I am still detained under the act which I'm reviewing, that feels quite bewildering in a way, but also quite exciting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you mind expanding on that a bit? Because um, I obviously was reading your book earlier and I, I read that as well, that you were detained under the Act. Do you mind explaining why? I'm sorry if that's a very blunt question. No, that's absolutely fine. I've been detained in hospital lots of time to stop me killing myself. But for the last 12 years, I've been on a compulsory community treatment order, which is hugely controversial. And there's some evidence that they really don't work very well, but in my case, they probably do. Um, and um, in the review, we've been looking at fundamental issues as to whether it is ever ethically responsible or sensible to force people to have treatment they don't want to have, which is one of the more complex things I've ever, ever delved into and hugely personally challenging because um, Although I'm treated against my will, a part of me thinks it keeps me alive and another part desperately, desperately knows what they're doing to me. And I have so many other friends who have been treated compulsorily who have such strong feelings about it that it's, it becomes a minefield to navigate um, with all the emotion that arises when your freedom is taken away and your dignity to some extent is destroyed whilst knowing or sometimes knowing when you come out the other end of it that without that traumatic intervention you would have probably died um, but we've been trying to reconcile the views of people internationally and um, locally regionally nationally psychiatrists professors psychologists all sorts as well as people with direct experience and their friends and family and that's, that's the process we've been involved in the last three years, which has been, been exhausting and finally feels as though we're coming out the other end and coming up with some sort of slow answers, but we'll have to wait till we have the final report finished. And in terms of being detained, I, I, you don't have to sort of talk personally, but just being detained under this, that kind of order, what does it usually mean? Does it mean you have to have regular meetings with someone or does it mean you have to have certain medication or? Is your travel limited? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm completely clueless about this because I'm not sure if it's actually the same in England as, Scot as Scotland, although it may well be. There is some variety. Um, with me, it basically, it means I have to see my CPM and I have to see my psychiatrist. And every two weeks, I have to go and get my injection. Now, it's not as clear cut as that. If I didn't turn up to see my CPM, I wouldn't be picked up and taken to hospital. And if I didn't take my injection, I wouldn't be immediately surrounded by the police. But ultimately, they could compel me or force me to go to a psychiatric hospital to receive treatment if I was refusing it. And I, I suppose it's kind of maybe in terms of the way I can see it came about in legislation was when they were sort of a long time ago when they were trying to move people out of asylums and they were trying to do the sort of, I don't know if care in the community is the right word, 
but you see what I mean? People living in the community, but still being treated, I suppose. Like maybe this was a kind of a halfway house idea. What, one of the motivations was um, the ideal that people had, and it's maybe not turned out that way, was that if you, the idea is you have the minimum, the least restriction on your movements and activities if you're being detained or compelled against your will. And the vision is that if you're in a hospital for month after month and year after year, the restrictions and limitations are massive. Whilst if you're in the community and like me, just having to turn up for a medication, then the restriction is fairly minimal compared to not having your own home or your own friends or your own environment. But, um, the initial, the initial thought that only a few people will be under these orders has not borne been borne out by reality. Many more people are under them than used to be or were intended to be. And there's a, there's a lot of conversation about whether they are effective and whether they make a difference. And that's some of the stuff we're looking at at the moment. Can we talk a bit about your book now? Cause this has been really, really interesting, but I don't, obviously don't want to end our chat without um, chatting a bit about your book. Um, tell us about your book. This is actually your second one that you're bringing out soon, isn't it? Um, why did you want to write it? Oh, oh, that's a difficult one. Uh, I go to start. I, <laughs> I go to start with my. Just tell us about it then. <laughs> first my first book, I, I had no intention of writing. I just started writing. Have you ever got into that place where somehow something overtakes you and you're just writing? Mm. So my first book, I wrote in seven weeks about one hundred and fifty thousand words, wow. and spent the next year, five years editing down, and it took ages. And this one, this one. I wasn't initially clear what I wanted to talk about. I still wanted to talk about life with a mental illness, but I also wanted to talk about all those parts of your life where you're not living the mental illness story. So although in Blackbird Singing, you can see a lot of my life with the symptoms and experiences I have, you also see me wandering the seashore at Ardmore with Dash the dog or playing with the children or wandering around with Wendy somewhere. And you see a lot of me coming to terms with the, um, the death of my dad and the death of Wendy's dad, who both died about two years ago. And the laying to rest of sadness and the past and recognizing how much, how treasured both of them were when for a time I found it very hard to treasure my dad. Um, it's a, it's a book that's both about mental illness, but also about showing that we live lives that are not dominated entirely by mental illness. So many memoirs concentrate just on our impairment. And I really want to show people with serious mental illness doing all sorts of things, just living life, just doing the ordinary things or doing the dramatic things, the tragic things when you're dealing with people in intensive care and illness becomes a minor thing. You're dealing with another person you love. It's, um, it's about life, really. It's about life for all of us, which for me happens to involve mental illness too. And it's about nature. And probably most importantly, it's about um, being in the family with Wendy and her children who give me a life I never dreamed I could possibly have. It is so, I am so incredibly lucky, which so many of the people that are, are around me don't have that opportunity. You know, I have a wage, I have an income, I have love. I have someone who is outrageously funny, completely loving and warm. It's a really good life. And we have Dash the dog. We even have rabbits and, and roses around our doors. So it's just, um, 
I, I can't think of anything better. It's about that too, to say that, that you, you don't necessarily live always in horror. Um, although I, I know some people do. So that, that's what it's about really. Lots of good bits, some very sad bits and some quite strident indignation about the way some of us are treated and regarded. That's it. That's what I've sort of gathered from, from what I've read so far is that, I mean, it's a, a classic memoir and you, you do mention in there some stuff about mental health, but there's just a lot of stuff, which is, I mean, you're, you're very sort of honest and it's just very, it's just very human really. I mean, I think there's lot, what I'm saying is I think there's lots of stuff that people who don't live with long-term mental illness would really relate to, um, like some of this stuff about, you know, loneliness, but also, you know, like the joy of, um, of your family and, um, like being out in nature and, and things that you've already mentioned. I, th I think that that was part of my intention. I want, I want us, I want us to acknowledge that what we go through is, can be desperate, can be horrific, but also it's not that we're the same as everyone, everyone else, but we are human like everyone else. And we live the human lives everyone leads. And we can talk just as much about silly rabbits not being able to get up the steps of their cage as we can talk about medication. And we can talk just as much about Charlotte doing her artwork or um, James on his Xbox as um, the late night evenings when we're just listening to the radio and can't sleep. So it's trying to, to leaven it something somehow with... Um, the life goes on a bit anyway, but even in awful situations, whether that's for myself or other people, we still make the tea, we still cook the meals, we still take people to school. And that's, that's a, a really important part of everyone's lives. Mm. And in that sense, I mean, there's, there's a lot of hope, I think, running through the book, because like I said, you've obviously been through a lot. It's just, a, you know, the world makes a sort of light and dark in there, um, which I suppose this is true of of everyone's lives, but, you know, it can be particularly, you know, sometimes it can be hard to remember that there's a light stuff, can't there, when you're struggling with mental illness. So I think it's really nice that you've got those moments of brightness as well. I, I wouldn't want it to be seen as um, life can, is rosy and you can get better so quickly, but um, I would like to say life can also be good sometimes, even though I'm well aware that so many of my friends have really bad, awful lives, which are very lonely and full of poverty, but um, it's good to show the mixture sometimes, I think, and I really enjoyed writing it, um, even though some of it was hard to write because it involved some painful parts from my past and painful recognition of how I've sometimes been in my life too. Mm. What are your hopes for the book? Oh, well, I, I want everyone to read it, <laughs> to see it in every bookshop. I'm not sure. Um, that's the selfish bit. I would love people to read it and to gain something from it. I think, I think there are maybe two main things, a few, a few things actually. One is, um, I have most of my friends have a mental illness and I would very much like them to know that it, that life can sometimes be better, that it's not always going to be terrible even though for some of them, it most definitely will be for many, many years. It's a complex message of not hope and recovery, but a message of even at your worst, sometimes just sitting on a rock by the shore, you can find some degree of peace, which is for me important. But it's also sometimes when I've given speeches to people 
I've met um, family members and they have, they have found it really helpful to know that there are chances of some sort of possibility. Some families, I think, are so shattered by what we go through that seeing something positive at least is a, a small mark of something. But equally, it's not about mental illness entirely. I think it's also valid to those people, and there are so many of us who are grieving. So many of us in recent years have lost, lost loved ones. And it's a complex process, grieving and coming to, to terms with what has happened. And um, it's true to what I've been saying all along. I have no answers to grief at all. But I talk about how I've dealt with grief and how my family has dealt with grief. And I think by sometimes sharing those stories, we can find some comfort. I don't think there's a way of doing mental illness or doing grief or doing love or doing family. But sometimes sharing how we've lived with it and being open about it and being open about some of the things we get wrong can be of some comfort to other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to keep chatting, but unfortunately I don't have much time left, I'm afraid. Is there anything else that you'd like to add um, to finish off um, about the book or just in general? It's, it's a very overly positive message, but when I was... And my illest, I thought my life was going to be horrendously lonely. Um, I was living in Nan, and um, I had no, not the slightest glimmer that I could ever fall in love with again, anyone again, or live in a family again. Uh, I had not, not a shred of belief in that, and was really cross with people when they suggested that my life could be different. I assumed I would grow old, and eventually I'd be too frail to walk up the stairs of my very tiny house. And that that would be that. And then somehow it all changed. I met someone. We got to know each other. Uh, mainly by talking on the phone and over text. And one day we met up in Inverness train station. And there really was steam rising in the air. And we promised each other the first thing we would do when we saw each other was give each other a kiss. And that was probably the best moment in my entire life. And it's been similar to that since then so even those of us who feel we're unlovable and can't be in relationships and mess it up again and again and again sometimes it turns out quite good and that's that's important to remember because i think so many of us feel that we really are not worthy of companionship or love and yet we most definitely are and i'd like people to remember that so this is goodbye from mentally If you've been affected by any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116123. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to our channel and perhaps even go back and listen to some old episodes. We have many of them. Also, you can get in contact with us. We have a lovely Facebook group, which is called Mentally Yours. And we're also on Twitter at MentallyYRS. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.